The following audio is from Downtown Church, a kingdom-focused, gospel-centered, multi-ethnic, multi-class ministry in Memphis, Tennessee. For more information, please visit downtownchurch.com. And so uh, today we hear from uh, one of our deacons, Michael Rhodes. I always enjoy when he preaches. Uh, he's a very passionate brother. Can I get an amen? I mean, he, um, he's very serious about his commitment to the Lord and, and what God has called him to do in his life. And so I'm excited to hear from him today. He's going to be speaking to us from 1 Corinthians 11, chapter 17 through 34. And I'll read that for us this morning. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I receive from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body of blood of the, of the Lord. Let us examine, let a person examine himself, then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are, are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Morning, downtown church. It's a pleasure to be with you. Uh, I want to start with a question. Raise your hand if you ever sat at the kids' table at a family holiday. Anybody ever sit at the kids' table? If you ever sat at the kids' table, you know, the adults are in here, you're at the little table. If you ever sat at the kids' table, you know there was a year where you thought you belonged at the adult table, but you still ended up at the kids' table. Some of us, this is still going on. Mike Shaw told me at Christmas this past year, he ended up at the kids' table. Okay? So it could be worse. Uh, the reason why when you're a kid and your knees start getting up above the kids' table, you want to get to the adult table, is that you know that where you sit can sort of be a sign of where you belong. And in this passage, Paul's going to write a church, write a letter to a church that's meeting in a home, that's eating a big meal together as part of their Lord's Supper worship celebration, and is trying to put some folk at the kids' table. And Paul's going to be ticked about it. 
And his words to them, I think, have a message for us. So let's jump right in. The first thing I want us to see right there in the first verse, in verse 17, is that Jesus gathers us into the church to make us better. Paul says, I don't have anything good to say to you about the way you're doing church, because when you gather, it's for the worse rather than for the better. Right there we learn that part of the reason why God brings us together in the body of Christ is to transform us for the better. It's not just Bible education. It's not just praise of our Creator. It's not just uh, getting something positive and encouraging. All those things are essential. All those things are a part of what we do in church. But Paul makes it clear that part of the point when we come into this room and when the Corinthians came into that house, was to be transformed. The gathering of the body of Christ should be like medicine that heals us of what's hurting us. Okay? It's sort of like an AA meeting or some other 12-step program. They're all, everyone is free to come as you are, right? But nobody is free to stay as you came. And that's what the church is like. No matter what you were doing last night, you can be here and we welcome you. But you darn well better believe that you, if you stick around, this medicine that is the congregation will transform all of us for the better. That's the first thing. But the second thing we see in that same first verse is that the way that the Corinthians were gathering was not for the better, but it was actually for the worse. It was making them worse. And we see this, it's like a drumbeat through the whole passage. In verse 17, you gather for the worst. In verse 20, Paul says, you're not even eating the Lord's Supper. You got the bread, you got the wine, everybody's in the room, but this is not God's table. This isn't church, you're not doing it. In verse 27, he says that because they're doing this, they've become guilty of the body and blood of Jesus. It's like they're crucifying God again. They're doing it so poorly. And by the time we get to verse 29 and 30, some of the Corinthians are sick and some are dying. The way they're gathering in church is bringing judgment on their heads. What is going on? And if you grew up in church like me, you know, we might assume, okay, what are the sorts of things that are this bad in church? You might assume, like, maybe they're teaching heresy or maybe they're letting people who aren't Christians take the Lord's Supper or maybe people haven't repented deeply enough of their sins, and all those are good things, but none of that's what this passage is talking about. It's very clear. Paul says, for in the first place, when you gather in the church, there are divisions among you. You come in cliques. And these cliques aren't just about fighting about, you know, what the napkins look like or who gets to manage the retreat or whatever. These cliques are based on social and economic distinctions. We know that. Because the result of gathering with these divisions is that at the end of the meal, one person is drunk and others are going hungry. And preserving these social economic distinctions in the church in the way they do church is so bad that not only are some people drunk and others are hungry, but Paul can say, you are shaming the poor and despising the church of God. That's what makes Paul so angry that he says this medicine of the gathered church has become poison and it's making you sick. This is one of those passages where it helps us to know a little bit about the Corinthian neighborhood. There should be a slide with a picture, Matt. Is there a picture slide? Pull that up. Uh, when we do archaeological investigations in the Corinthian neighborhood and we read about what some of the folks were doing back then, we find out that this is the floor plan for a, like a really wealthy home in Corinth. And when People in Corinth gathered for a meal. 
they'd invite, you know, like they'd, they'd bring everybody in, right? Like rich people and then their servants. If they had slaves, they'd be there too. And they'd have guests and everybody would be there. But this little space right here, the triclinium, that big fancy word, that's like the VIP lounge. So all the guy, the host, all of his good friends would be there. There'd be about nine people. And then the next 30 or 40 people would be out here at the atrium and the pool, which is like a big, drafty, breezy hallway. And you'd be standing. The guys in the VIP lounge are like laying down at the table. It's hard for me to imagine, but that's what they tell us. And the guys in the hallway are standing up, eating, you know, out of their hands. And it's worse than that because if you were in the VIP lounge, you'd get like steak, you know, big juicy ribeye and potatoes and like strong wine, you know. But if you're out in the hallway, you might get like a little fat off the steak, but probably just mainly bread. And the thing that they put in your cup would be red, but only because they dropped a little bit of wine in your water, okay? So where you sat at the table or stood showed where you stood in the hierarchy. And what scholars think is going on in Corinth is that these wealthier Corinthian believers were welcoming the church into their home, but they were preserving these very culturally normal and acceptable distinctions when they did so. And Paul says, "Uh uh-uh, that makes this church not gathering for church. Now, before we move on and we're hard on them, we need to recognize uh, this Corinthian church is a multiracial, multiethnic, multi-class church. They've got all the right people in the room. But the way they arrange the chairs mean that that gathering is not getting the work done that God wants for it. Why? Why? Because when these Corinthians gather, these Corinthian Christians are more Corinthian than they are Christian. And because they are more Corinthian than they are Christian, they so corrupt the worship of God's people that it ceases being a force for good and actually makes them worse. You see, Paul saw the church as a place where neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, everybody from every walk of life would gather in God's presence and he would transform them into one new people who welcomes one another across all lines and all barriers. And in fact, as he tells us over and over in Corinthians, it's not just that everybody gets a seat, it's that the outcasts, the guys that in Corinth you would put in the hallway, actually have a special seat at the table. Remember 1 Corinthians 1? Not many of you were wise, not many of you were strong, not many Many of you are important, but God chose the foolish things and the weak things and the have-not things to shame the ones that are so that nobody can boast before the Lord. So if God's plan is to create a community across all these lines where there's a special place at the table for those normally left in the hallway, there's a steak reserved for those normally eating the scraps, there's a big glass of wine for those mainly drinking water, if you gather in some other kind of way that's more Corinthian than Christian, you ruin the power of gathering as the body of Christ. And the bad news for us is that we are tempted, and any time we succumb to the temptation to be more fill-in-the-blank than we are Christian, we risk turning what we're doing right here into poison instead of medicine. If we are more Presbyterian or Baptist or AME, or Kojic, then Christian, we were, we risk turning this gathering into poison. If we are more white, or black, or Latino, or Asian, or native, we risk turning this aggregation into poison. If we are more American, or British, or Mexican, or whatever, than we are Christian, we risk turning this thing that we're doing, that God has given us, into a force for destruction. 
If we are more middle class than we are, fill in the blank, whatever we put there, right? And we can see this in history. Uh, this past month, uh, I, I saw someone quote from Frederick Douglass's autobiography of his life as a slave. And he has this ter- terrifying story of a slave master who was particularly brutal, who went to church and got religion and got worse. Because now he could misquote scripture as he beat the heck out of his slaves. He was more white, upper class master than Christian, and so the church made him worse. This congregation right here, there was a worshiping African Methodist Episcopal congregation in this church that was at the heart of the civil rights movement. And that church denomination has done powerful things in our city, but their roots are way back from the, uh, the, uh, what is it? Long ago. <laughs> Uh, way back, uh, when uh, a group of African pastors split from the Methodist church, can't find it, don't know where I am, there was a date in here at one point, 1787, 1787, a bunch of black Methodists split off from the Methodist church and became the AME church. Do you know why? Because the white Methodist church was more white, northern Methodist than Christian, and so black pastors could only preach to black congregants and black parishioners had to sit in a separated place. That's how the denomination came into being that was in this church. Because when we gather more as something besides Christian, we get in the way of what God wants to do. And this has happened to me. You know, when, I'm, I mean, it, uh, I'm, I'm white, if you can't tell. And if it hasn't become abundantly clear by, like, everything about me, I'm also, like, upper middle class bougie white, East Memphis white. Okay, that's my roots. And when I came into the city, you know, like, full of, like, desire to do good, you know, there were a lot of ways that I was living out of my white, upper-middle-class, bougie Presbyterian stuff rather than Christian. When we started our community group in South Memphis, we, we wanted to put a special priority on our neighbors having a place to study the Bible. But because I lived out of my upper-middle-class, bougie Presbyterian stuff, uh, you know, our first study was like, like a Tim Keller high theology on like the city. You know? And what we were doing was we were putting the unchurched in the hallway. And it made a lot of sense for me. Pretty much the only way that I can schedule my life is by email. So we would be sending updates all the time by email. I got news for you. A lot of South Memphians, that's not their first move for communication. So we're putting South Memphians in the hallway. Not trying to. Doing it. And if you can, if you've been awake, uh, the last, you know, decade or so with us bougie white folks, you know, we're, we're, our food thing has become, you know, like everything is kale. So in our community group, everything was kale for a while. Like different kinds of kale. Like I think we actually had a barbecue where people put kale on the grill. Okay, putting everybody on the planet except for folks like me in the hallway, right? This stuff happens. This stuff happens. What's Paul's solution? Paul's solution, it's point three, is for the Corinthians to reshape their lives together around the story of Jesus. He doesn't say start a new church. He doesn't say give up the meal thing, do something easier. He says, no, remake your gathering around the story of Jesus. This is how he says this. I pass on to you what I heard from others. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he took the cup and said, this this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. And you know what he was saying to those Corinthians? Look at Jesus. He's here. He gave his body and blood for everyone in this room. The VIP lounge and the hallway. Right? He said, you remember New Covenant, that New Covenant language? You know where that comes from? That comes from Jeremiah, when God had given his people the law, and he'd given them a mission, and he'd given them a task, and they were doing terribly at it, and they were failing, and they were drowning in their sin. And God says, you know what? When you fail, I will act. 
I will take out your heart of stone. I will give you a heart of flesh. This law that you can never live up to, I will write it on your hearts, and I will forgive your sins no more. And Jesus said, this cup, I am buying the cost of your forgiveness and transformation in my blood. He who knew no sin while we were sinners, while we were enemies, was broken so that we could become the new creation, new covenant people at the table. And if Jesus gave up heaven to give you the wine of the kingdom, you can't give that watered-down garbage to your servant in the hallway. And if Jesus died to give you the feast, you can't cut like a little tiny bit of fat off your steak and send that out to your servant girl. That won't work. That won't cut it. Reshape your life. And how do you do that practically? He doesn't just point them to Jesus. He says, look, look, here, can we have the text? Pull up the text. Uh... I don't know uh, which verse it is. Okay, anyways, one of the verses, he says, Listen, uh, so if you don't want to drink judgment upon yourself, let a person examine himself. Because you drink judgment when you fail to discern the body. There's a two-step move there. It's essential. It goes like this. Every single person brings all their stuff into the church. They're, I'm a Corinthian master, or I'm a Corinthian slave, or I'm a Corinthian Jew, or I'm a Corinthian... Look at your own heart. See what's going on, right? When you come in, identify where you're living more Corinthian than Christian in your own heart. And then, and this is the second step, discern the body. And the body there is not necessarily just the sacred character of the bread. It's the body that's the community, right? In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul will say, we are one body because we eat one loaf. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul will make the body the metaphor for the church. So what Paul's saying here is, look at your own life, look at your own heart, look at your own cultural baggage that you're bringing here, discern the body, and then in the end, in verse 30, wait for one another or welcome one another. Look in your heart. See where you're more Corinthian than Christian. Look at the body. See the way your actions affect one another. And then wait for or welcome one another. That word wait there, wait for in our translation uh, is fine. But you know, like in English, we can say like wait uh, for someone or wait on someone. And it has more of a sense of attending to. The Greek word there when it's about food is almost always welcome one another. So what Paul's saying is, Look at your heart, identify your baggage, look at the community and its diversity, and welcome one another. And when you do that, something incredible happens. The most incredible thing in the whole world happens, which is that we, Paul says, Jesus says, proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, notice what's happening there. Jesus says, when you together around this table, eat the bread and drink the cup. When you eat and drink together. When you eat and drink together, y'all proclaim the gospel until he comes. What Paul is saying is that when we gather for the better, because we let Jesus reshape us into being first and foremost members of his body before anything else, we become a tract that is nailed to every door in our neighborhood. When we let Jesus reshape our lives, we become the gospel message. And people can look at us and say, oh, that's what it looks, that's the gospel. Because they see it in our lives. The life of the church gathered around the table of God, becoming 
the body, the hands and feet of Jesus, is the gospel to the world. The good news embodied for our neighbors to see. But fourth and finally, by the way, let me say this before I move on. What that means is that I'm not talking about erasing our cultural differences. You see, when we're more whatever than Christian, our differences ruin everything. But when we come to Jesus and put him first and our brothers and sisters ahead of us, God gives us the best parts of our culture back. So we are not less than white, black, Latino, rich, poor in this congregation. We are more than. We are the best gifts of all of the cultures present, given and received around Jesus. And that's good news. That's really good news. Okay, four. When we do this, we don't just become a proclamation to the world. We carry that transformation into the world. So that people transformed by the table carry Christ's body and blood out into the world. There's a problem here in the text that people get worked up about. Because in verse 34, Paul says, If anybody's hungry, let him eat alone in his house. And what it sounds like is that Paul's been championing the cause of these poor folks who were discriminated against all along. And then he gets to the end and is like, You know what? I know you guys are going to be mean to your servants at home, but just don't get the church dirty, please. That's what it sounds like he might be saying. Like, okay, if you rich people want to do that, just do it somewhere else. But that's not it. You know what Paul knows? Paul knows that if you treat people like Christ treats people around the table, it will transform what you do everywhere else. How long are people going to be able to go home and oppress and marginalize their servants when the day before their servant handed them a piece of bread and said, this is the body of our Lord broken for us? How long would Corinth shape Corinth in the lives of these believers when Christ had shaped these believers to welcome one another as a sign and symbol of the kingdom. Paul knows, as Gordon Fee puts it, that his assault on this system of discrimination is direct, no, excuse me, is, is indirect, but at its core. In other words, Paul's solution to this socioeconomic discrimination is indirect, but at its core. Be a true Christian at table and care for the needy, a matter always close to Paul's heart will likewise become part and parcel of our lives. What I want to suggest to you, brothers and sisters, is that our job is to be radically reshaped around this table that we'll come to, precisely in the way we welcome others who are different, precisely by keeping people out of the hallway, and that when we do that, it will transform the way we do everything, such that our lives become one long carrying out into the world of the body and blood of Jesus. That's what Paul says in the next chapter, I mean in the next letter. We're being transformed into the image of Christ, and we carry his death around in our bodies, so that our that his life might be present in our bodies. Paul says, we become Christ by God's grace, and we carry that into the world. So that's our task when we're trying to figure out what it means to be citizens, or doctors, or factory workers, or parents, or neighbors. We come here and get transformed, and then we work out together what it looks like to carry Christ into all those places. Okay, so much for the working our way through the passage. What, how do we apply this? What's this mean for us? I'll say several things very quickly. First and foremost, we come here to be changed. Stop. I mean that. We don't come here to have what we thought beforehand affirmed. We don't come here with a checklist to make sure that everything lives up to our expectations that we brought with us. 
We don't come here looking for an excuse to keep our private sins at home. We come here expecting to be transformed. We come here expecting to be changed. We come here expecting this thing that we're doing to tear our lives apart and rebuild them around Jesus. And there's something we say in this church that's so true. We always, you know, in all of these churches that are, are trying to be more diverse and unified around Jesus, we say things like, you know, you can come to this church to be a Republican or Democrat or rich or poor or black, white, Latino, Asian. You come however you want, right? And that's so true. Praise the Lord that's true, right? But I think sometimes we think that means that we can come from all these different camps, come here, and go straight back into those camps and not have our life in those camps changed. We think that we're going to come from all these different walks of life and go back to them just like we started out. So that the church becomes like this cool party where all that goes away. But then out there, it's the exact same stuff. And I want to tell you, yeah, at the end of the day, we may still vote differently. We may still work differently. But the way we work, the way we parent, the way we vote, it better darn well be affected. It better be affected by the way that we do what we're doing right now. Because if not, I don't know if we're actually getting transformed. We're just having like one cool party. We gotta come expecting to be changed. And we need each other for that work. Now if that's gonna happen, what did Paul say had to happen? Remember the two step. Each one of us has to come looking into our hearts for the ways we are something else first and Christian second when we come here. Golly man, it is so easy for me to do this. I mean I got opinions on worship. I got opinions on the sermon. I got opinions on how the, 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 the Psalms get read. I got opinions on how the children get taken care of. I got opinions on how information, I got opinions on everything. And every one of you does too. And I gotta check my heart and examine Where is that just me? Where is that just bougie white Mike? And where is that Christ? And I have to do that discernment looking specifically at how it affects the body. That requires us to be self-critical. But the good news is we are self-critical and we repent in hope. It's sort of hard to follow, but Paul says, you know, judge yourself so you're not judged. Discern the body so you're not judged. But if we are judged, in other words, sometimes you're going to screw it up. Sometimes Rhodes is going to white man, folks. And when that happens, it's going to be pain. We're going to be judged. That's what it says. But even then, Paul says, that judgment is discipline or training so that you are not condemned. The pain of being in this church, being with these people, working it out, is rescuing us from the devil. Do you believe that? Do you believe that whatever pain there is of trying to figure out how to love these people who are different than you and constantly feeling terrible when you screw up is for your good? If you feel like, man, I am tired of running up against those people or this group's stuff, let me just tell you something. That's the medicine. That's the medicine. And when you ignore it, that's when it becomes poison. Even when it hurts to look at ourselves in the body and be like, ah, it's for our good. But third, we can't just look at ourselves. We have to take responsibility. And I want to say, uh, like the terrorist watchdogs have said, if you see something, say something. You know when you go to the airport, like if you see something, say something. Like if you see somebody putting a bomb in a suitcase, you know, don't wonder if it's actually a cake. Like go tell TSA, right? That's the idea. And I want to tell you something. Look at what it took for this situation to get dealt with. Paul received a report, right, about dissensions. In the first chapter, we're told that it was members of Chloe's household who brought him the original report about dissensions. Chloe's household is street slang for slaves and servants. 
So some slaves and servants were sent to Paul for some reason or other. And when they got there, they, only not, not, they not only did what they were supposed to be doing, but they all said, hey, Paul, there's this stuff going on you need to know about. What that means is that people with the most to lose, the people whose business it shouldn't have had to be, the people who had like, like the most likelihood of getting kicked around for speaking up, at great personal risk, had to say, look, we're getting stuck in the hallway. We're getting the scraps. And it isn't gospel. And then Paul, there had to be leadership willing to hear that and risk a lot of social capital to confront it. And I guarantee you some of the Corinthians were in Paul's fundraising deal, you know? And he got along pretty well with those powerful folk. And he had to risk all of that to speak up on based on this report he heard from the nobodies. And then don't think that the rich people weren't involved too. We know the rich people received this. You know why? Because Paul, you know, put this on a little piece of parchment and stuck it in the mail. And if they hadn't liked it, they could have pulled out a lighter and burned it on the spot. But we're reading it 2,000 years later. You know why? Because even the powerful in Corinth must have said, oh, goodness, we're off track. we gotta, we got to redo our lives and we got to remember this. Somebody, somebody put that 1 Corinthians in the lockbox so we can bring it out every once in a while and remind ourselves to be more Christian than Corinthian. The whole group had to be committed to hearing one another and speaking up. And I want to say, some of you feel, some of you who come from minority cultures in this church are tired of helping folks like me figure it out. And I am so sorry, but we need you. And some of you folks who have influence, I'm not just talking, when I say leaders, I'm not just talking about Richard. Anybody with influence, are you a community leader? Do you have kids? Wherever you have influence, are you listening to those who are getting put in the hallway and risking social capital? And some of us who are kind of on top are getting tired of always having to see where we're screwing it up. I'm sorry. This is the process. This is the only way it happens, folks. And our church has been this for me. Our church has been this for me. I brought a lot of bougie baggage with me. And it's been folks like Pi Boaz and Mike Davis and Derek and Crystal Oliver who have said, this is what it's like to be black in America for me. And I've said, but, no, listen, this is what it's like to be black. But the, no, this is what it's like, right? Last year, when uh, two unarmed black men were killed by police officers and then several police officers were killed by a gunman, our church called it an impromptu lament service. Is the best thing I have ever done in church, bar none. The reason was, we gave anybody who wanted to, predominantly people of color, a chance to stand up and say, this is what I'm feeling right now. And when I, when I saw the hurt in my brother's eyes, it reshaped the way I have to engage here and I have to engage everywhere else. This church is becoming a place where if we see something, we say something. But it's hard work. It's hard work. And the temptation is that we walk past each other and shake our hands and like, woohoo, at church. And then we get on Facebook, right? And we say exactly what we're feeling and thinking, where nobody can like respond in our faces. And if you follow me on Facebook, you know I, I'm not condemning Facebook. I do that. I'm with it. But if what we're doing out there isn't built on really figuring it out together in here, we will get worse rather than better. We gotta, if we see something, we gotta say something. And that means that we have to be working out what it looks like to carry communion into the world. I have picked the most controversial way to talk about this, uh, unashamedly. Uh, last week, I have talked to Richard about this too, so, you know. But don't tell him that. No, I'm kidding. Um, last week, Richard did an incredible thing. He said, we've got this thing with refugees and immigrants going on in our country. And whatever our disagreements are, we got to know we don't have a choice about loving immigrants and refugees right here. At the table, there are no refugees in the hallway. At the table, there are no immigrants in the hallway eating watered-down wine. At the table, 
We are together loving even our enemies. And what I want to say is, that's true. That's 100% true. That's the most important truth. And because of that, we have to be working out together what it means to carry that experience into the world as parents, as employees, as employers, as neighbors, and even as citizens. And right when I say that, some of you guys think Mike's got some you know, policy agenda. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying we've got to work it out. We've got to be the people who are so in love with each other because we're so in love with Jesus that we can have hard conversations about what does it look like to be a parent right now? What does it look like to be a neighbor right now? Let's talk about what it looks like to carry the body of blood and the Lord into the world. And I really don't know what that looks like. Take this refugee immigrant thing. I really don't know what it looks like, and I need you guys. And if some of you are thinking, yeah, those people need me, if you think it's simple and straightforward, maybe you're the one who needs other people in your life. If it's simple and straightforward to carry Christ in the world, maybe we need others to show us just how not simple it is, but to work together to figure it out. I do know this. When LifeWay asked a 1,000 evangelicals where they got their view on immigration, only 16% said Scripture or the Bible was their primary determinants. So I'm not telling you I know the answer, but I am telling you we're not even making progress on the question if we're not saying the task is with every single thing we're doing to say, what does it mean to carry Christ into the world as a transformed people of God? Because that's the grace that he's given us to give us new hearts and new lives and a new mission and to empower us for his work in the world. In the 1800s in this city, I'll say this and I'm through, uh, every black church in the city was torn down by a white mob, destroyed. Why? Why? I'll tell you why. Because they knew, there are other places to attack and terrorize black people besides church. They knew that what was happening in those four walls was so explosive, so transformative, it wasn't going to stay there. They knew that justice in the church was a threat to injustice anywhere. Jesus died and shed his blood to build that kind of church. And he gives us the task of coming into the congregation expecting that kind of transformation. Now, when I finish there, it makes me want to leave here with my head down and my tail between. That's not it, guys. Because you know what? Not only did Paul write to this church, but in the first verse, he calls these people, these messed up, oppressive people, screwing up the Lord's table, he calls them saints. Here's the good news. We aren't doing this alone. Jesus is here. And he meets with us at these tables right here when we eat and drink his blood in just a minute. And he is in charge of the transformation process. And he is with us in our weakness. And he is committed to do this work. So, may we embrace him and our brothers and sisters here. Figure out how to carry that transformation into the world. For our sakes, for our neighbor's sakes, and for his glory. Let's pray. Jesus, as we come to your tables, may you transform us. May you reshape us and renew us. God, may you challenge all the places that we are more anything else than Christian. May you give us ears to hear the pain of our brothers and sisters. May you give us willing hearts. 
to worship you and love our neighbors. God, we need you desperately. This thing that we're doing, we all sense it, of trying to be your church. We know that it's painful. We know that we screw it up. We know that we mess it up. Lord, and we do that because our hearts are hard. Lord, my heart is so hard so much of the time. There is work that must be done in our hearts and in our congregations that only you can do. So, God, I pray that you would do it. We love you, and we welcome you here, Jesus. We welcome you. Holy Spirit, you are welcome here to transform us. And we ask that you would. Amen.